Thank you very much for joining us. Um, I'd just like to start with introducing myself. I'm Dr Elise Lang. I'm a GP in North Cardiff. I'm also the Macmillan GP advisor for Wales, um, working specifically with end-of-life Macmillan GP facilitators across Wales. Um, I've got two colleagues alongside me today and I'd like you to meet them and be introduced to them. So first of all, um, a colleague in a very similar role is Dr Rachel Lee. So thanks Elise. So I'm um, a GP in Ely in Cardiff and I'm also a GP Macmillan advisor for Wales working with Elise. And then our um, colleague who is a hospice consultant but previous GP, um, Dr Fiona Rawlinson. Thank you. Hi everybody. Thanks Elise. So I work as a consultant in palliative medicine in the community and also I run the uh, Cardiff University programmes in palliative medicine and it, it's great to be joining this, uh, this webinar podcast today. Thanks ever so much both of you. I mean I guess we just want to take the opportunity to review where we are really in, in primary care and community care in light of changes over the last 12-13 weeks with COVID-19. Um, so Rachel, the first question would be to you really, how has your role changed since the start of the year really? What does primary care look like and what does um, the Macmillan work you're doing look now compared to how it looked at the start of the year? Okay, thanks Lise. Well, I think everything has completely changed, you know, as it, as it has I think for everybody. Um, first of all, as a GP, things look very, very different. Um, the way we're consulting with patients is very different. Um, when we see people, we, we look different. We're using protective equipment um, both to keep them safe and ourselves safe. But I think the biggest change is that we are doing a lot of our consultations remotely. So either using telephone consultations, video consultations, um, by email, e-consults. But we are seeing people, but in a safe way if they need to be seen. I think what's very different is our GP surgery door is now closed um, and that's certainly not that we are not open for business and we're not here for patients but we are making sure that it's safe both for the, both for the patients and for the staff to be seen and um, so people if they need to be seen at the surgery are brought up at an arranged time and they don't have to wait in a waiting room with other people we make sure they wait safely in their cars and then we'll bring them through as needed. Um, you know, I think we are we are having to readjust to a very different way of working. Um, I think all of us miss the face-to-face -face contact with patients, and I think we generally miss the face-to-face -face contact with people. Um, but it is amazing how much can be done in different ways. You know, you can keep in touch with people and have good conversations using using video consults and telephone calls. And um, as my role as GP advisor, obviously we're already um, supporting the end-of-life GPs. I think it has been a great time for collaboration as the um, Macmillan GPs. We are very well situated in the health boards and we've all been able to collaborate and work together to try and sort of support primary care, delivering the end-of-life and palliative care that's needed. And obviously during COVID that, that was even more vital and important that we got it right. So it's, it's, been, um, it's been great to see how well we've all worked together and collaboratively. There has been a change, you know, we've been having virtual meetings, Zoom meetings, and it's sort of getting used to the Zoom etiquette that you can't interrupt people, you have to put your hand up. Um, Zoom fatigue when you're in meetings all day long. Um, but yeah, it, it's a different way of working, but it has been a very positive, collaborative change. Thanks, Rachel. And I guess same question or similar question to you, Fiona. I mean, what does community palliative care look like? now we're at the beginning of June compared to the beginning of January 2020. 
Well, I think I think the essence of what we do hasn't really changed, but um, preparing certainly back in March time, preparing for the modelling of numbers um, was very very concerning, and trying to prepare for people who might not be able to access to get into hospital, um, both with COVID and and with all the other conditions that that, that people die from. Um, so there was a lot of time spent preparing and thinking and talking and collaborating, as Rachel said, and that, that has been really exciting because it's opened up channels which probably might have taken years to establish. And actually, we, we have all managed to do things in a very short space of time. I think it's brought into sharp focus, though, um, the need for community, the community, society to think about unexpected dying and actually have you talked to your loved ones about you might what you might want and what you might not want so i think all the previous conversations around future care planning or advanced care planning which have been very much in people's minds over the last couple of years have suddenly come into sharp focus and then of course the added complication for us very much like rachel was saying to be safe from our point of view and from our patients point of view we are wearing level one PPE when we go and see people, which effectively means that we are trying to have difficult conversations, sensitive conversations, sometimes with a mask on, which if people lip read, they can't, they can't see. So it's about explaining, preparing people for the fact that we, 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 look, we look different, but we'll be there. And the other thing that's different, I think, is just thinking all the services are going to be there in the community, but they might just be accessed in a different way so the immediacy of being able to ring up and get something sorted quickly that might physically just not be able to happen either because people aren't there because they are self-isolating or shielding or ill themselves or just it's going to take longer to get things sorted so i think our biggest thing has has been just the need to to prepare people, to prepare people for, for, for planning ahead and being a little bit more proactive and setting expectations. Um, we're dealing with huge levels of uncertainty and at a sort of at a clinical level, I think it's the we're dealing with an uncertain situation, but actually in an environment that itself is uncertain because the public health messages change at the beginning, they were changing nearly every day. Um, and keeping one step ahead of everything was really important. I think the uncertainty that the media brings just because the world is uncertain has been very unsettling for people. I can talk about the impact of grief and bereavement at a different time, but I think those are the, those are the biggest changes we've seen. It's kind of palliative care skills, but with that added level that's, that's needed, added level and added planning. Mm. That was really informative and, and, and sort of comes over to my second question really which was what sort of um prepare, preparatory work has been going on in in the community in terms of both primary care and, and the hospice to try and do the best that we can possibly do through this i'll ask that to rachel first okay thank you so um i mean going back to what's happening in primary care i think we're also noticing a lot more people are choosing to stay at home um partly because of the impact that they, their relatives may not be able to visit them when they're in the hospital. So we have found, you know, we've needed palliative care support much more, but also, you know, we've needed to have good resources and advice at our fingertips because so many more people are, are wanting to stay at home. 
Um, so we went into this crisis potentially with an end-of-life drug shortage, which was certainly in Cardiff and Vale, which was very, very concerning. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of anxiety amongst GPs and primary care clinicians that this was going to be a very big issue because obviously the forecasting figures of people who were going to be needing them was very high. So um, in Cardiff and Vale, being a Macmillan GP, I was asked to lead on um, how, the health board, how the health board could be prepared for primary care for this. So the first thing we did was we tried to tackle the end of life medication issue. Um, and there are quite a few new initiatives and like we said, I think it's been amazing what's been achieved in such a short time. There's things that I've been trying to push through for years and years and suddenly in the space of a few short weeks, maybe eight weeks, it's all been pushed through and has made such a huge difference. So again, I could go on all day about the changes, but just in a nutshell, um, one initiative we've done is we have dedicated pharmacies in Cardiff and Vale, which have a set stock of end-of-life medication. And we have liaised with them to get mobile phone numbers, which are purely for use in emergencies if you need urgent end-of-life drugs. And this has made a huge difference. A, you can ring the pharmacy and get through. At the moment, it's very hard to get through to a pharmacy because of the queues, their phones are constantly engaged. You can ring this line, straight away find out if they've got the drugs and arrange for the family to get straight to the front of the queue and get the drugs and get home to their care their their, pay, their loved one sorry um other things that we've done we the was so the welsh ambulance service every single paramedic crew ambulance has got a set of just in case medication drugs and there, there are, there's a process in place now, which means that if they get to a patient and they recognize that they need these medications, they can verbal order from a clinician and um, make sure that the drugs are given in a very timely way. Other initiative is to save wastage. In a nursing home now, we can repurpose end-of-life medication if needed. So if, for example, another resident didn't need them and they're needed as an emergency and we can't access them in any other way, we have a process in place now where they can be used. And that's the same in the hospice as well. Another thing to grow to reduce waste, uh, good for the environment, is if you have, say, in a nursing home, two, two patients that need the same medication, and it's a large vial that you've got, rather than throwing away the wastage of that vial, you can use it for more than one patient. And again, we have very safe procedures in place for that to be done. Um, other examples, we can now give verbal orders over the telephone if it's an emergency and, for example, we've got a patient in the community and it will take too long for the doctors to get to the patient to prescribe the medication. The district nurses, community nurses are authorised to take a verbal order from us. Again, I think that that will make a big, big difference. And the other amazing thing is something called a GEMP. Now, this is a courier-based Wales-wide um, service and they guarantee they can get a bag of emergency end-of-life drugs to a patient's house within two hours. Now, this is fantastic because there are often times where the patient may not have any family members who can go to get medication or they may not want to leave the patient um, uh, or the pharmacies local to them may not have the drugs that are needed and with a, a quick digital um, prescription and communication with the courier service these drugs can be delivered usually much quicker than two hours and again it saves the stress and anxiety and hopefully avoids hospital admissions if somebody's in distress in the community. 
So like I said, I could go on all day, but I think I should stop there. That's a fantastic summary of what um, I felt would be um, the main hub of this conversation, really. So be useful to hear Fiona's comments on that. I'd also just echo a couple of points, having done some of that work with you. I mean, the comment about pharmacies and the mobile phones is fantastic. And on the floor, that's going to be really helpful. And I think, you know, for, for GPs and community workers, it, it's always important as well to where to find this information. And currently, um, Rachel, where's best to find that? Is that the COVID link on the Cardman Vale portal page? Oh, Elise, you haven't been listening to my information. You, you can find it there, but actually it's very clear on the Cardiff Bell Internet clinical portal. If you go on the primary care tab and then go on prescribing, it's there. And I have circulated a briefing with step-by-step -step instructions on how to do that. That is the best place to go, though, rather than printing out the copy because the pharmacies and the drugs will, will become outdated quite quickly. So it, it is very easy to find. And I think the thing that goes along with it is it's obviously valued for both in and out of hours for a lot of these changes as well, which I imagine, um, Fiona, in, in your line of work, it's been a, a change that's been wholly overdue uh, and very valuable. So we've spoken about both access to pharmacies directly when the prescription's needed, the ambulance and paramedic team being able to give medication as a stat dose with a verbal order, the care home repurposing and then also this just in case this GEMP bag being deliverable within any site in Wales within two hours of request. Have you had the, uh, the need to use any of these services as yet through your role and, and how do you see them working going forward? So I have not yet used GEMP personally myself but I know colleagues here in City Hospice and in Cardiff who have and, and no doubt in other parts of Wales and absolutely the feedback is just this is just fantastic because if you think of what's happening in that house at that time or in that care home at that time you know it, it, it if, if somebody's symptoms are not controlled particularly in the context of Covid when that there, there isn't the same level of access of, of visitors or of, of everything everything is different so if symptoms are not controlled then that's deeply distressing for everybody including the patient so being able to know that at a phone call once you start that process rolling you can you will actually be able to have access to medicines quickly and to be able to sort the situation out and in a sense when I say calm the situation down, I'm, I mean more actually get things back feeling under control because I think, you know, uncontrolled symptoms are bad enough at the best of times. But actually in this COVID time when everybody is on edge and everybody is having to work slightly differently, sometimes with PPP on, anything that adds additional stress is really difficult and impacts on that whole experience for obviously for the person but for the staff so yes all the feedback from all these initiatives is really positive and the bit about repurposing medication I mean particularly anyway in this era of not really feeling uncomfortable about unnecessary waste actually particularly with COVID with the need to make sure that we've got enough medicines that there are enough medicines to go around it's really important I think people I think Rachel, what you said at the start of your piece is, is, is really true, that people who may have been a bit ambivalent about dying at home, who might have been perhaps a bit frightened of it, whose families might have been a bit frightened of it, because it, 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 if you haven't faced it before, it's a big unknown and you might be worried that actually will it work? Will I be able to do what a hospital or a care home or the hospice might do? 
but actually what COVID's done is to almost force people to confront that a little bit more. Um, and people, but the bit about visiting, you know, particularly in March and April, when so much was still unknown, it was very necessary for the hospice, for hospitals, for care homes to reduce footfall is how they called it. Um, just really to try to make sure that we were not contributing to the spread of the virus in any of these facilities. And so I think that made people more um, more willing to think about it, braver, more wanting to at least try to look after people at home, which has actually again been really quite exciting and, and for the people for whom it's been able to happen. Actually, now as we're starting to do the first bereavement, just check-in calls around about round about six, seven, eight weeks, actually affirming to people what they were able to do has been really positive. There's so many things that we have not been able to do, and families have not been able to do as a result of the pandemic. But actually affirming people in what they have been able to do um, has been really important. So as we move forward. I think it would be really good to continue these discussions and to continue some of the amazing practices that we've been able to put in place because I think the end of life experience for families, which of course is what they remember, um, will have been greatly enhanced by, by all of these things. Mm. Really fascinating. Um, I think certainly, you know, in primary care, it, everything that you have just said you know we felt and we worried about you know certainly through March and April we're sort of re-establishing what we know now and and ways of working forward and certainly with my practice and, and others you know that focus on trying to know people's wishes was mm. really key um, and to know it in a timely manner without looking like the Grim Reaper or someone asking a question when it was felt irrelevant so you know there's been a lot of media commentary both in a positive and negative way about conversations around DNA CPR. I just wonder, I'm aware of time maybe for another couple of minutes, whether we could have a bit of a chat on, um, Fiona, first of all to you, sort of um, how COVID has shaped and challenged both ACP work nationally and also DNA CPRs and whether the press has been supportive or, or harmful and, and made it harder for you in your role. That's a really, I think that's a really good question. And I think it would be a good topic for, for another podcast. But in essence, just to kind of to, to give completeness to what we're talking about now. I think, I think what COVID's done is to make the conversations perhaps at an earlier point than one was doing them before to be much more relevant. Just because so much more was hanging on the decision to go into hospital or not. You know, to go into hospital meant no visitors. To go into hospital, um, you know, potentially meant actually going in and maybe not coming home again. But the need to get those conversations out there was was relevant for people who were shielding. So in the early days, when the, the big one of the big concerns wasn't it was for the older um, members of our population or for people with significant illnesses, if they were to catch COVID then the risk to them, the mortality was higher and the risk to them was greater. Therefore, having those conversations, which you might not otherwise have, was recommended. This, as you so rightly said, had led to quite a lot of media stories about people feeling that they had been 
forced to have the conversations but i would take people back to those those early days the end of march when the modeling for numbers was looking absolutely dreadful and we built in cardiff we built the 2000 bed dragon's heart hospital in the stadium because we thought that we were not going to have capacity so there were some really deep conversations that needed to be had because one of the scenarios we had been looking at was that there would not be capacity in the hospitals i'm very thankful that i think with planning but also with some of the measures that we had we did not get to that pitch so that that that, that point so that that was really good i think However, I think as with all of these things, the art has been in the communication and I think it's, a, it's an aspect of health care, but actually also a family care of things that we should be doing with our own families, is finding time to be brave enough to talk about the things that matter and starting the conversations sensitively and recognizing when actually you were treading on very thin ice or you were you were heading into areas that the person in front of you felt deeply uncomfortable so part of this is communication skills picking up when people are uncomfortable with what you're talking about and either saying look you know at some point i think this would be really useful to talk about but perhaps now isn't quite the right moment shall we come back have you had any thoughts about have you had any clear ideas about if they've had a recent hospital admission did anybody talk to you in hospital about it and interestingly the times when i felt a little bit reticent about mentioning it very often if it's important for patients they've actually stopped me and said you haven't asked me about that form they haven't asked that form they asked me about in hospital or my GP asked me about. Um, but it's a really important part of that conversation, particularly if somebody wants to stay at home, if they haven't told their nearest and dearest, if they haven't told you as the GPs, if they haven't told perhaps us if we're involved, if the paramedics are called, if they arrive at the door, if there's no direction, then that's not helpful to them either. So looking at the patient, I mean, deeply holistically as somebody where lots of services are involved is really important. There are many resources collecting out there around having those conversations. One such example is the Talk CPR website um, developed by my colleague, Dr. Mark Talbot. I think it's a conversation that every healthcare professional needs to practice to think about sometimes it will go well sometimes it won't go well i think one of the important things to remember though is is it actually talking about cardiopulmonary resuscitation it, it's about that it's not about the piece of paper it's not about the form it's about what the person feels what the person might want and and cpr is what it says it is so that form resuscitation is not about care it's not about not having fluid it's not having not having pain relief it's simply about restarting the heart if the heart should stop and for some people it is a very um, vigorous very physical actually very brutal exercise to watch and to be part of and when one feels that it's futile it feels very uncomfortable for the people around that person having said that if you've got clear views as a patient, then it's really important to say them. But that's only part of advanced care planning, thinking about where you might want to be, thinking about making a will, thinking about telling people, telling people what you feel. Think about people who were admitted with COVID, suddenly they're in hospital 
they can't have visitors they might be able to talk on a tablet or skype or or whatever but actually if you haven't taken the time to say to people what's important that you love them that you thank them that you appreciate them the moment's lost and, and i think that's been a real wake-up call it's a little bit similar to to work by colleagues in america on the hiv aids and that spurred a lot of work around a colleague called Ira Bark and his five things that people want to do towards the end of life. Some of which is about saying thank you, saying I love you, saying I'm sorry, saying goodbye if you, if you feel that that's important. And the impact on relatives afterwards, on grieving afterwards, if the conversations can be had and understood, Grief is grief. It's, it, it always has a difficult side to it, but it is more straightforward if some of these things can be, can be mentioned and can be talked about. But actually, it's a bit of a lesson for us as healthcare professionals as well. So actually, you know, within our own families, have we talked about the things that matter? They're brave conversations, but they're really important. They're really important conversations. I agree. I mean, uh, that's the word, isn't it? Brave and, and a term that men and use would be courageous conversations and, mm. and they're difficult and they're not easy. And you need to have the skills to do them well. And having to learn to do that remotely now is an even bigger challenge. Um, and as you say, doing them with something covering your mask, uh, covering your face, so you've got no um, other cues as to what, what the person's saying other than their eyes. I've been lucky enough to have been in the audience for your conversations, um, you know, communication skills updates in the past. And I think that might be a useful topic maybe for a future podcasts, actually, because um, it's something that whilst we all think we've had the experience and we've worked through, we, we know how to communicate. I think updates are always really helpful on that. Rachel, was there anything more you would like to add on sort of ACP and DNA CPR work in the community? And I'm going to ask you just to be succinct in your responses as, as I want to make sure people can move on to other topics. Okay, yeah, no, thanks, Elise. So, you know, I echo very much what Fiona's been saying. It, it suddenly became a far more important thing. Um, and I think, you know, ACPs ask these conversations we should be having anyway, but the COVID crisis made us consider being braver and talking to people that perhaps we wouldn't have brought the topic up with. I was very lucky in my cluster because we'd already taken on advanced care planning as our quality improvement work. And we were already quite a way down the road to trying to increase and improve the amount of conversations people had about their future wishes and um, so we were doing things like we've gone to the local mosque to raise awareness about advanced care planning i've been working with our acp nurses and they've been setting up stands in gp reception areas just with general information and i think we wanted to make it no longer the elephant in the room and you know a conversation that people felt they could bring up and have about their wishes when they came to the end of life and um, both with, for their families and with the healthcare professionals. Um, I was incredibly fortunate that just at the start of the COVID crisis, we got a Macmillan community coordinator um, who was working with our local charity in Cairo Neely. And it's been a pleasure to work with her. And we're already, again, trying to make advanced care planning a much more accessible conversation to have. So we are developing back home boxes for people who've been in hospital and that's quite often a time where they might might mention to people that they don't want to go back into hospital and that's a great opportunity to just open that conversation up and we're just developing a very um, sensitive leaflet um, that will just raise the possibility about what advanced care planning is and that option to to come talk to your local GP if you do want to take it further 
um, you know, there's a there's a lot of good work going. We've got the volunteers that we're going to train up again to have these conversations with people and to enable them to start facilitating it and thinking about what they want. And I think because of COVID, I know there's been good and bad press, but people are thinking about things more. People are definitely thinking more that they don't want to go into hospital because of the implications of no visitors. And it is, it is, although remotely and more difficult, actually sometimes easier to have those conversations and, you know, start the ball rolling. So I won't go on, I could go on a lot longer, but again, probably time for another podcast. But I'll conclude there and, you know, we'll, we'll provide further information through, through links to, as to how to contact the three of us individually um, and also where to find some of the information we have discussed as part of this. But um, I'd like to offer my thanks to both Dr. Rachel Lee and Dr. Fiona Wardenson for their time today in recording this and to you, the listener, for spending the time listening to it. Many thanks. Thank you.